As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. What are you laughing at? Hands smell like sandwich. They do. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't make me. <laughs> that is the danger of podcasting after lunch. Your hands smell like a Sammy. Yeah, well, I'm lucky that uh, I actually got any of it. The dogs were all up, all up in my grill. Oh, yeah. They had a big day out on the town, the boys did. Yes, and it uh, turned into a bit of an incident that involved paper towels. Uh-huh. Yeah, we <laughs> we had stopped at a store. It's called Tractor Supply. I don't know if they have that where you are, but it's kind of like a combination hardware store slash uh, farm supply outlet. Sure. And you can buy... Dog food, candles. Yeah, right, right. Tools. Tools. Tires. Hay. And you can bring your animals in. So we, we took them in. We were, we were going in to get some dog treats. And uh, we ran into a family who brought their baby goat in. So adorable. So sweet. Willie got ex- exceptionally excited about that. Yes. Willie, our uh, older of the, the pugs, about 25 pounds, just about as sweet as he can be, got so excited when he saw the goat, um, poop just came out of his butthole. Yeah, it wasn't like he squatted. No. He was just standing there all excited and wagging his tail (laughs) and doing that and just poop fell out like a Pez dispenser, just right on the floor. Just Just so excited. Shit. He did. He 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 was so excited about seeing a baby goat that he literally pooped Mm -hmm. and i can't help but think that that's one of those examples where pets resemble their their parents yeah he's my dog he's your dog yeah he's my dog 
Because I know you almost pooped when you saw that baby goat. I did. I had to work real hard not to. Clenching them butt cheeks. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, stranger lady. There ain't enough paper towels for that. This is a fun little excursion. Mm-hmm. So the moral of that story is uh, don't hang out with baby goats if you have a weak sphincter. It's a good lesson. That's the rule. Uh, curator at the box of oddities.com is our email address. Find uh, us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now Goodreads. Goodreads. That's where we list books that we cite as we talk about all the weird stuff. And it's kind of been fun sharing book ideas with uh, some of the freaks. It has been. All right, you go first, and I'm very excited to find out what your next topic is. Okay. Imagine this situation. Yes. It's a regular morning. You're home, you're folding laundry or whatever, and all of a sudden, the light from outside gets incredibly bright. Alien abduction. You can feel the warmth of this bright light, and then there's a thunderous boom. All of your windows explode inward as the ground under you shakes. Not alien abduction? No. That's what happened in Russia on the 15th of February, 2013. At about 9.20 a.m. Oh, is this the uh, the asteroid thing, right? The day of the Shelyabinsk, Binsk. The day of the Shelyabinsk meteor. I'm going to double check and make sure I'm pronouncing that right. Okay, okay. Shelyabinsk. 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 Yeah, yeah. Shelyabinsk. Binsk. The day of the Shilyabinsk meteor. Ooh, this is cool. Let's start here. What is a meteor? What is a meteor? Yeah, because I had to do a little research. I've always been a little confused about what the difference is between a meteor, a meteorite, and an asteroid. So, okay, okay. according to the American Museum of Natural History, a meteor is a small body of matter from outer space that enters the Earth's atmosphere, becoming incandescent as a result of friction and appearing as a streak of light. Meteors are not meteorites. Like meteorites, meteors are objects that enter the Earth's atmosphere from space, but meteors, which are typically pieces of comet dust, no larger than a grain of rice, burn up before reaching the ground. As they vaporize, they leave behind the fiery trails, sometimes called shooting stars. Even though meteors are obviously not stars at all. The term meteorite refers only to those bodies that survive the trip through the atmosphere and reach Earth's surface. So the vast majority of meteorites are pieces of asteroids. I love a good piece of asteroid. Don't be gross. You're criticizing me because of my love for astronomy? Is that what you're doing? Asteroids are rocky bodies found mostly in an asteroid belt, uh, usually between Mars and Jupiter. Um... Asteroids, which are much smaller than planets, obviously, are sometimes pulled out of the asteroid belt by the force of Jupiter's gravity. Many of these asteroids then travel toward the inner solar system, then can collide with Earth. So obviously all very connected, but, you know, there are different names for different life cycles and so on and so forth. So I was a little confused because the Shelyabinsk meteor is called a meteor and not a meteorite. That's because the visible phenomenon due to the passage of an asteroid or meteoroid through the atmosphere, that part of its life cycle is what's called the meteor. Really? I didn't know that. Right? 
That's, yeah. I always thought that like meteorite was just a smaller version of a meteor. I kind of did too. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. We're both dumb. <laughs> We're both dummy dum-dums. All right. So the Shelyabinsk. 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 So the meteor was an approximately 20 meter near-Earth asteroid that entered Earth's atmosphere and then, you know, broke up and burned up and all that business. Uh, Heavier than the Eiffel Tower. It measured about 20 meters in diameter. Which may not sound like a lot, but that is a huge foreign body to be entering the atmosphere and smashing into the uh, planet Earth. Yeah, it's like 65 feet or something crazy like that. I mean, it's, it's enormous. At its most intense, the streaking fireball coming into the Earth <laughs> was glowing 30 times brighter than the sun. It was visible up to 62 miles away, and it left people on the ground below with skin and retinal burns. No way. Is that right? You know, I'd heard some things about this particular event, but, but I had never heard that that's fascinating one resident in corkino that's the only way i can possibly think to pronounce that it's about 18 miles from the point of peak brightness uh this person actually lost skin from their face after being burned by the radiation so as you can imagine coming through the atmosphere it's not good for uh the meteors i mean it you know it's also not good for um former members of the Soviet Union citizens' faces. That's true, yes. They yeah. burn right off. But the uh, what I'm getting at is that the heat evaporated three quarters of the meteor. So around four to six tons reached the ground. That represents just about uh, 0.05% of the original rock. You imagine if the whole thing had made it through? I mean, it would have been like... <laughs> oh, it would have been dinosaur time all <laughs> over again. Yep. We, we would not be here podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> no, or breathing and moving around. Due to its high velocity and the shallow angle of atmospheric entry, the object exploded in an airburst over Shelyabinsk Oblast at a height of around 97,000 feet. And that explosion generated a bright flash, producing a hot cloud of dust and gas that penetrated to uh, 16 miles. And many surviving small meteorites haha uh, made it to the ground as well as there was a large shock wave you can find videos that's mm. a, that's one of the amazing things about um, how recently this happened is that there are lots and lots of surveillance videos and YouTube videos of people showing the the meteor coming through the sky which is it looks like something out of a sci-fi movie yeah yeah and and it seems as though everybody in russia has a dash cam yes is that like a law over there or something? i think it might be and i okay. think it's a great idea yeah, i think it's a great idea anyway um so but i'm not agreeing with putin on other things well it's just you then i guess <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so there, there's videos of it coming through the sky, and there's also a lot of surveillance footage of people inside buildings, you know, just going about their day, doop, 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 and then all of a sudden the windows explode in at them. Yeah. And um, there's one of a uh, warehouse, and I didn't see that there was anybody in the warehouse, which is great because the big delivery door just flies inward. Ooh. It's 
terrifying. And I caught myself while I was watching these videos, my hand was like over my face and I was watching it like this. Were your butt cheeks clenched like you'd seen a baby goat? No. Okay, so you're driving along, doodly doot, doodly doot, doodly doot. Fireball from the sky, sure. brighter than the sun. Melting your face. Okay, but then imagine you didn't see that fireball and no one loves you enough to send you a text to say, hey, there's a fireball coming toward your, your work building. So you're just in there. You're Maybe you're, uh, you're doing a job interview and you're all like, so what do you think? Uh, It is about this company that you would like uh, to, uh, why would you like to work here? And then all of a sudden, all of the windows break in at your face. Well, the first thing I would think would be, Mm -hmm. ow, my face. Right. There are shards of glass in it. Due to the shards of glass, yes. And then I would think, to be honest with you, the first thing I would think is a nuclear weapon of some sort. No, I totally get that. And it's interesting that you say that because the seismic measurements that they did regarding this event were equivalent to the blast yield of 400 to 500 kilotons of TNT. That is 26 to 33 times as much energy as that released from the atomic bomb detonated in Hiroshima. That's terrifying. It sure is. Now, did we see this coming? Were there any reports from NASA or... Not really. So, obviously, they saw it. They had to have seen it coming. Whatever agencies are responsible for this. And they didn't tell us. No, the word is that because of the angle that it was coming in at, it was obscured by the light of the sun. That's terrifying. Yeah. The object was undetected before its atmospheric entry, in part because it's what it's called, it's radiant was close to the sun, and its explosion caused a panic, obviously, among local residents, and about 1,500 people were injured seriously enough to seek medical treatment. But no deaths. No deaths. That is incredible. It's mind-blowing. Especially, I mean, warehouse doors flying in, glass breaking everywhere. Nobody knew it was coming, so you couldn't get underground. You couldn't protect yourself in any way. No. Um, there... You know, we're very lucky that the the actual strike zone wasn't a populated area, just just outside. Um, some seventy two hundred buildings in six cities were damaged by the explosion shockwave. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Authorities scrambled to help repair the structures. And because it's Russia in February, it's sub-zero temperatures. And so, you know, the rebuild was really difficult, but there were people's homes were just ripped open. It's insane. We've already talked about that because we jumped around a bit. Uh, Measuring, as we mentioned, about 20 meters in diameter, uh, this was the largest known natural object to have entered Earth's atmosphere since 1908, the Tunguska event. Tunguska? Mm, It's close. That's the one that they thought was a UFO event. Yeah. Or some people still do. And the, the photos that you see of the damage, because it was in such a remote area, are just downed trees. Yeah. For... Ever. Because if I remember correctly, the um, meteor exploded above the ground mm-hmm. 
and caused a shockwave to go down and out. And so you see miles of trees flattened out from a center radius, all burned and down, and it just looks... It's super spooky. It's really spooky. Mm -hmm. All right, so what's the plan? Not go to Russia? Events, No, events like this happen with a frequency of every 10 to 60 years. And, it, I mean, it's space. So, you know, it's hard to tell what's going on. There's a lot of... It's, there's there's a, a lot of it. There's a lot of it out there. Right. There's a lot of it out there. <clears throat> NASA places a high priority on finding near-Earth objects. They call them NEOs and protecting our home planet from them. In fact, the agency is working with partners in the U.S. and around the world to detect, track, and characterize NEOs, especially those that might pose a threat to human populations. This is actually from the NASA website. NASA's been studying NEOs since the 70s, and the... Um, Um, asteroids and comets that have been nudged by the gravitational attraction of nearby planets into orbits that allow them into Earth's neighborhood are comprised mostly of water and ice and dust particles and blah, blah, blah. So there are some people that believe that we could, like, set up missiles and uh, detect the NEOs coming toward Earth and then shoot the missiles at the NEOs and blow them up before they get a chance. But uh, the the concern is that in order to track them in a timely manner, it would take like 10 to 20 years to build the thing that we would need. And we don't have that kind of time. Right, right. We don't have Bruce Willis. You know, we don't have Bruce Willis to help us. And we don't want to miss a thing. Don't want to close my eyes. Another thing, too, is they're they're concerned if they blow up an asteroid that the pieces will all just rain down on us or or particles, parts of it. Um, So they're thinking more in terms of just nudging it in a... Giving it a nudge. In a different direction. Right. Yeah. Um, Again, there's... Real, there's a real spread on mm. how people think, uh, how effective that would be. Where you know what, we're there's nothing we can do. That's kind of you know? that's kind of the idea. There's, there's actually an article that I read called um, "Asteroids Coming Toward Earth." There's nothing we can do. Well, there you go. And I, I mean, I kind of get it. Yeah. Um. So what's uh, what's NASA up to now? Well. This was just in the news. Uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, 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 not sure, had uh, come out publicly saying that uh, they needed a new deputy and who he wanted. There was someone uh, in mind who had a technical background, who understood space and the agency charged with exploring it. Can I guess? Sure. Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's not Neil deGrasse Tyson. I love him. I know. Also not Bruce Willis. Um, He had Janet Cavandi in mind, a former NASA astronaut who flew to space three times She's now the director of NASA's Glenn Research Center. Um, But a couple of months ago, the White House went in a different direction, nominating James Mohard, who is a longtime senior staffer on Capitol Hill with a bachelor's in accounting and little to no technical science or space experience. I don't even know what to say. We're doomed. Yeah, we're doomed. We're doomed. Is there anything good in this that uh, you can add? Nope, with? that's all I have. That's it. Okay. All right. There you go. 
No one died. Not yet. This um, time. Yeah. So, but you know, the good thing is about that guy that, that's been nominated um, is that once the Earth does blow up, um, he can count the pieces. And now, the Box of Oddities brings you That Thing in the Middle. This episode of That Thing in the Middle, weird things that the government has spent money on. Number five. $914,000 for a romance novel website. <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah. Well, the National Endowment for the Humanities has funded the Popular Romance Project for uh, three years at a cost of uh, $900,000. I don't understand. The website aims to enlighten Americans about romance novels, music, fan fiction, and other things that give this genre of pop culture its due. I legit don't understand. Number four. The National Institutes of Health has invested over $10 million developing and promoting a video game about a young teen that must escape a town full of fat people as a method to fight obesity. <laughs> what? How much? $10 million. Did this game ever even get to market? The game was tested on 100 kids aged 10 to 12. Results of the study found that children increased the amounts of fruits and vegetables they ate by playing a video game that did not increase their physical activity levels. And a video game that portrays people with obesity issues as bad. Number three, $466,642 for a taxpayer-funded study on the sexual habits of obese girls. What? Yeah. But... Yeah. All that money went to uh, McGee Women's Research Institute to study the sex habits of girls, including how often they have sex and why they are less likely to use protection when they do. Oh, Lord. Number two, pumpkin donuts. How much did that cost us? $290 million. $290 million? Yep. In his Waste of the Week speech, Senator Dan Coats said that the feds have wasted more than $290 million in taxpayer dollars over the past 10 years on an agricultural grant program to market pumpkin donuts as a healthy locally produced food. Wow. And the number one weird thing the government has spent money on, they have spent half a million dollars over a half a million dollars on Viagra. I don't understand why they... What? Explain it. The Department of Defense spent more than a half million dollars on the male enhancement drug in 2014. You're going to keep us safe with your boners? <laughs> the, the Pentagon <laughs> issued 60 contracts worth that much money for the drug, uh, all of which were awarded to Cardinal Health Incorporation, a pharmaceutical distribution company in Dublin, Ohio. They began offering Viagra to soldiers as a medical benefit. Right, but okay. chicks shouldn't get birth control. <laughs> that makes sense. They paid $25 a pill, and if you do the math on that, that comes out to 80,770 hours, 33 minutes, 36 seconds of sexual male enhancement, assuming that no erection lasted more than the medical advised four-hour maximum. I don't even know what yeah. to say about that. I don't, I don't That's know. That's really upsetting. It's a lot of money for boner medicine. But also shrimp running on treadmills. What is this? Is it's this... a shrimp running on a treadmill. And that cost us how much? $500,000. Explain, please. This is a bonus one. The National Science Research-funded experiments were said to have cost taxpayers anywhere from 500000 to $3 million. 
a professor of marine biology, defended the research, saying that he made the shrimp treadmill uh, by himself and out of his own pocket. That only cost $47. Where did the rest of the money go? I'm not sure. What was the purpose of this study? In the years since these, uh, these experiments were conducted, scientists have tried to explain the significance of testing and exercising shrimp, but have been unable to explain it. All righty then. There's a video of a shrimp running on a treadmill to the song Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> well, that makes it worthwhile, and I take it back. I take everything I said back. You got your box. You got your oddities. Talk about your perfect storm. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, it's my turn, but before I I get into my topic, I I wanted to mention this. In the last episode, I talked about premature burial. Horrifying. Horrifying. We touched on some of the ways that uh, they would try to determine whether or not the person was truly dead. This was during the late 19th and into the early 20th century. And most of what we talked about uh, was various contraptions that were invented, different types of methods that were tried, that were patented to help prevent premature burial. Right, like attaching bells to people uh, in their coffins that rang. If if the person wasn't dead, they would they would ring the bell. You can ring my bell, ring my bell. Thank you. But I'm reading this book, Stiff, by Mary Roach, yes. which uh, was recommended on our, uh, on our Goodreads page by one of our freaks. And I actually had it on my queue. I just hadn't gotten to it yet. But I'm reading through it, and just by coincidence, they start talking about premature burials and how they dealt with it. And I missed this before I did my episode, so I wanted to pass this information along. And again, this comes from Stiff by Mary Roach. The soles of the feet were sliced with razors and needles jammed under toenails in order to determine whether or not the people were actually dead. Oh, this is what you woke me up to tell me about the other night. Sweetie, 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 sweetie. razor blades. (laughs) What? Ears were assaulted with bugle fanfares. They would just, you know, stick a trumpet up to their heads start playing Eye of the Tiger or something. Hideous shrieks and excessive noises were used. Sure. One French clergyman recommended thrusting a red-hot poker up what was genteely referred to as, quote, the rear passage. Listen, that clergyman had something deeper um, going on. <laughs> yeah, because be. that is not the thing that you <laughs> no. should think of to do. Did he go to that first? Let me think. What's the best way? Red-hot poker up the ass. It's awful because even if the person isn't dead and they wake up, now they've got a cauterized asshole. That'll ruin a guy's morning. Oh, great. First, I died, or at least everyone thought I was dead. Then I got better, but oh, no. Now my butthole is seared shut with a red-hot poker. Thanks, poorly informed Victorian clergyman. (laughs) It just reminded me. Stupid hotel manager! (laughs) (laughs) A French physician invented a set of nipple pinchers specifically for the purpose of reanimation. What is wrong with these people? Yep. They just go straight to the weird shit. And then uh, there's, a, there's a lot more, but I'll just tell you one more. There was like this bagpipe-like contraption for administering tobacco enemas, which uh, was demonstrated enthusiastically on cadavers in the morgues of Paris. <laughs> 
No. Yeah. Stop that. Right. Immediately to the butts. Why? Well, I think that if there's any hint of life in a person, you start fiddling with their bum, they're they're going to react somehow. Mm. Either pain or pleasure, one or the other, I guess. But today, I'm going to talk about the giant of Willow Bunch. Bum, bum, bum. What is this about? This guy, his name was Edouard Boupre. You like how I said that? He's like a, a Canadian guy, but obviously of French heritage. He was born June or January 9th, 1881 in Saskatchewan in the tiny parish of Willow Bunch. He was the oldest. They had 20 kids, this family did. And he was the oh. oldest one. Oh, man. By the age of 17, he was over seven feet tall. Oh, wow. And at that point, he showed no signs of, of, of stopping. The growth. I mean, he he was he was born of a normal size. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, he wasn't because I mean, like that woman's eight feet or birth cannon was already. Oh, who needs struggling? That? His growth was referred to as dramatic and uncontrolled, and it and it really caused him a lot of pain. I'm getting a lot of this uh, from a couple of different sources: humanmarvels.com and also uh, Wikipedia. Okay. Now, according to the reports, even though his growth, his uncontrolled growth, caused excruciating pain. He was a he was a man of, of gentle nature and mm. quiet spirit. So often that's the case. He was just a, a nice, quiet man, very kind. In his early years, he was known to be an excellent horseman. In fact, his father owned uh, some sort of a cattle company or whatever, and and he worked for that for a while. And he had a dream to be a cowboy. That's what he wanted to be. Oh. But then a, a horse kicked him in the face. And disfigured him. And so his family thought the best thing for a guy who was over seven feet tall at seven, uh, 17 years old yeah. and had a disfigured face was yeah. to join the circus. Oh. Wait, I'm sorry. What year was this? Uh, this was, he was born in 1881. So it was like late 1800s. Oh. Into the early 1900s. Poor bundle. He began exhibiting himself in order to support his family. He toured Canada and uh, much of the United States. How tall is seven feet even? Well, he got much, much taller. That was by the time he was 17. His body refused to stop growing. He ultimately grew to eight feet, three inches tall. How tall is our ceiling? Our ceiling is eight feet. Ah! Yeah. Oh, the poor bundle. Oh, oh, that's awful. Oh, I don't like it. On July 1st, 1904, he signed a contract with Barnum and Bailey Circus to appear at the uh, St. Louis World's Fair. Now, he was not just like being marketed as a, as the tallest man alive. He was also marketed as the strongest man in the world because unlike many giants who are often frail and sickly, he was robust and possessed incredible strength. And uh, so he wasn't just like, hey, look at the giant guy. It was, look at this giant guy who can lift a horse and put it on his shoulder. He could lift a horse? That was his signature stunt. Oh my gosh. On March 25th, 1901, while he was in Montreal, Edouard wrestled Louis Sear, a man who was considered to be the strongest man in history, and still is by many people. The match was very short. Sear easily won. Oh. But they think at this point, Edouard Boupre was being ravaged by tuberculosis. Oh. He was kind of worn down by his life on the road and was weakened by a body that refused to stop growing. 
So while he was on the road with Barnum and Bailey Circus, are you looking at a picture of him? Yes. Yeah, he's he was huge. Yeah, I know, right? Oh my god. No, he was bulky, very proportionate. Yeah, yeah. He he wasn't uh he wasn't sickly until the end. He was very strong. Well, it's so often you know, those who are afflicted in that way are are just lanky and not not proportionate and He's he looks so proportionate. That's the only where I keep saying the word proportionate, but he just looks so proportionate. That's I'm gonna say it one more time. Oh, he was yeah, he was pretty. He looks pretty proportionate. So he signed this contract with Barnum and Bailey to appear at the St. Louis World's Fair. Two days later, he died of a pulmonary hemorrhage, a complication of his tuberculosis. Well, I imagine also a complication of being that large. I yeah. mean, your heart has to work so hard. I would think so. To for. A, Always so tall. He died at the Fairground Hospital on July 3rd, 1904. At the time of his death, he was 8 foot 3 inches. As a result of the massive pulmonary hemorrhage, the mighty Willow Bunch giant was dead at the age of only 23 years. Shortly before he died, this is so sad, the giant asked for a glass of water and then proclaimed he was dying and then lamented on how sad it was to die so young and so far away from his parents. And you said he was 23? 23 years old. So he grew another foot and a half from 17 to 23? Yes. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So the corpse was taken to a local undertaker, E. Berlin Keys, to be embalmed and prepared for internment. The remains were to uh, be returned to Willow Bunch, by William Burke, who was the Barnum and Bailey circus manager. Mm-hmm. But when he found out how much the shipping charges were, oh. he said, you know what? We're going to have the funeral here and then arrange to bury him here tastefully in St. Louis. So if you guys could take care of that, that'd be awesome. But instead, you know, Burke just simply skipped town and left the cadaver unclaimed and the undertaker unpaid. Oh, yeah, Which just is, wrap that up. We'll be back to get it later. And then he never showed up. And probably that was a lot of embalming fluid. I would think so. So the undertaker decided to preserve the body. And then they just kind of put him on display in their store window. No. In St. Louis. What is wrong with you people? Right on Broadway in St. Louis. They just stuck him in the store window. People had a problem with that. Well, yeah, it's disgusting. So they, uh, they they took him out of the window, and through unknown connections, the body made it to the Museum of Eden in Montreal and put on display. But the exhibition drew such a crowd that authorities had to come and shut it down. Uh, the body was then, um, I guess it was, it was sold off to a circus, a Montreal circus. And the circus toured around a bit and showed this poor guy off. But then the circus went bankrupt, so they just dumped the body in a warehouse and it sat there for a couple few years. That's so awful. And it was forgotten about until 1907 when two kids who were playing in the warehouse came across it. That must have been horrifying. Just playing in a warehouse and then there's this like eight foot three cadaver. I'm wondering how they stored him. Was he in a box or just leaning up against the wall with a hat? I can't, I just, there's, what, how... I don't know. Well, the University of Montreal claimed the body. And after doing some research and an autopsy, they decided the best thing to do would be to mummify the body and put him in a glass display case at the university. No! And there he sat, 
or laid, if you will. The family only discovered that he was in Montreal in 1967. He was there for 60 years. Oh, man. And in 1975, the family started the process to try to get the body back to Willow Bunch for a proper burial for the love of God. Jeebus. The university, though, refused and claimed rights over the body. Why? Finders keepers law. Oh, I see. They said they wanted to continue doing research and didn't want the body displayed anywhere else in 1989. This was like, again, the, the proceedings started in 75 to try to get him back. Oh. 1989, the, final, uh, the family tried again. Only this time they brought the media with them. And of course, that put pressure on the university. This time uh, it worked. The effort worked. Oh, good. The university decided that they could cremate the remains to prevent anyone from grave robbing the body. So I don't know if if the family agreed to this or not. Uh, my guess is probably they did. But the body of Edouard Bupre took two huge urns to contain all the giant's ashes. Mm. But in 1990, the body of the uh, giant of Willow Bunch returned to Willow Bunch. They had a memo- family had a memorial service. It was actually his um, nephew that that led this the search for him. The remains now lie in front of the Willow Bunch Museum. They erected a uh, a large monument for him. I bet it was. It was life size, and that's where he remains to this day. So wow, this reminds me a little bit of that Elmer McCurdy story I did really early on. Yeah, in one the of your first stories, the uh, the the bandit the, who yeah was embalmed and not claimed, and he ended up being toted about in road shows. In an and, amusement park. Yeah, he was. they thought he was a wax dummy. He was hanging in an amusement park and they found him uh, during the filming of an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man back in the 70s. A lot like that. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but, but think of that story as well. And also of um, Andre the Giant. Uh, you know, they, it seems like so often uh, people who are afflicted with I can only assume that it was the case in Edouard's situation, giantism. Yeah, yeah. And so often just the gentlest, kindest, sweetest, most misunderstood. And I wonder if that's because throughout their lives they get reactions from people, like people are scared of them mm-hmm. and they try to overcompensate with, with kindness and gentleness. That's just a theory of mine. There's no scientific research that I'm aware of on that, but... The autopsy they initially did, did determine that he had a tumor on his pituitary gland, which is what caused that. It also reminds me that The Iron Giant was the best animated movie of all time. Really? You think it's the best? Because I remember it came on after we were watching something and it was just running in the other room Mm -hmm. and you heard the music and you started to weep. Yeah. And then I ran away. We'll never watch it. I mean, never, ever, ever watch it. Best movie ever, but can't watch it. You have a similar reaction to The Last Unicorn. Frankenstein. Frankenstein, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The misunderstood outcasts, like you and I are. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that we're like the last unicorn, but... No, uh, but we are misunderstood outcasts. Sure. Thanks for accepting us. We're so glad you're here, you freak. Theboxofoddities.com, social media. You can find us all over the place on social media. Goodreads, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and... No, that's it. So not really all over the place, but in several several places. We should have a MySpace page. You Is can that be still in our a top thing? eight. <laughs> Is that still a thing? Yeah, yeah it's what a about, thing. What about Friendster? Is that still around? I don't think Friendster is still around, no. 
MySpace. Last I heard, it was kind of more for like bands and stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. used a lot more for music. But it's almost like a punchline. Oh, I'll check you out on MySpace. Unless you have a MySpace account, in which case, cool. Yeah. I'm all sad now because of Edouard. Well, I understand that because he's dying alone in pain at 23 away from his parents. And then when he's gone, he just he's turned into a carnival attraction. It was 80 years before they returned him home. Also, I think maybe the next time we have difficult words to pronounce, we should bring in experts. Like um, your brother-in-law, Bill, can, can do our, uh, our Canadian Frenchy type words. In the northern part of the state of Maine... Well, it's pretty much South Canada, really. Yeah. And so there are a lot of French-speaking citizens there, and I love their accent. Oh, it's wonderful. I it just, really is. I love the accent. Yeah. So, you're going to take out the ding-dang skidoo, eh? Like that. Front up the car. Yeah, you're going to front up the car. Don't back it up. Front it up. And then close back the lights, eh? That's, uh, I don't know, I don't know if we've mentioned this or not, but this that's where we live. We live in Maine. Yeah. Uh, beautiful state. Uh, that's the the home state of Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. In case you didn't know. He actually lives about three blocks from here and totally ignores us. Have you read The Long Walk? It's a great story. I did meet him once, though. Yeah? Yeah. It was my 13th birthday, uh, and we were going to the movies, and I saw him. He was on his way into a movie. Uh, it was The River Wild, so that tells you what year this was. What year was. that was, yeah. Let's see when it came out. 1994, and I was going in uh, to see a movie for my birthday, and I saw Stephen King, and he was he was going into a movie, and I said um, to my dad, I was like, Stephen King, and my dad was like, well, go talk to him, and I was like, I can't go talk to him, Stephen King, and he was like, do it, go talk to him, so I went over, and I was like, hello, Mr. Stephen King. I was going to see you. Hope things are going well. Could I have your autograph? And he was like, I don't really do autographs. I'm just here to watch a movie. And I was like, I totally understand. I'm so sorry. And then I ran away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my dad gave him a ride once. Your dad gave Stephen King a ride? Yeah, because, you know, he used to hitchhike every once in a while. And my that dad must have been a up. long time ago. Oh, it was a long time ago, back in the day. When he was teaching high school English? At Hamden Academy? I don't know what he was doing, right. but he was hitchhiking, and my dad picked him up. Well, that's at least what my dad said. Is that the end of the story? Yep. Okay. I just gave him a ride. <laughs> okay. Did his car become haunted afterwards, or did perhaps every time he turned on the car radio, he was receiving messages from the dead? Anything like that? No, he, just, huh. no just okay. gave just, him a ride. Just gave him a ride. He said he was a nice guy. Right. Cool. So, okay, so that's our show. Okay, then. Okay, geez. The grumble of the dogs tells us it's time to wrap it up. Time to close back the lights. Thanks for hanging out with us. We, uh, we love you guys. I love it when you talk French-Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Holy crappy. <laughs> and we're not making fun. You know, I have relatives that talk like that, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. My dad had a Down East accent, and it was rough. Down East accent. Explain that for people who... Um, Down East would be... So... Yeah. So I went clamming down down to the harbor. Parked my car down. Parked my car down by the harbor, did yeah. some clamming. Looked up at the roof. Looks like there's a spoon on the roof. A spoon? 
Spawn. Up, up on the roof. And yeah. then I had to go in and, and buy some batteries. Buy some batteries at Walmart's. Yep. Picked up some diapers. Maine's a wonderful place. I love it. All right. So anyway, that's that's the show. Love you. Bye. We're, we're out. Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly. And so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.